Thank you. Thank you for everyone who's, um, yeah, just blessed us so much already this evening. Just being in the presence of God is such a wonderful thing. And, um, yeah, thank you for everyone who's contributing and, yeah, just brought words and encouragement. And, yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, as you may know, we're in the book of Acts. So if you are looking to track along in the Bibles, we're at Acts chapter 4. And um, we've been, we're in this wonderful little section in Acts where lots of exciting things are happening. Um, and I just wanted to start with... Um, just a thought before we start looking at the passage, but if you want to, go to Acts chapter 4 while we're, while we're kind of setting up. Um, does anyone remember the days before we had sat-navs yes. and before the days we had smartphones with phone apps which told us Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it may be to help us to get from A to B? Does anyone remember those days? Yeah, I remember having an A to Z on my lap, driving and kind of, you know, trying to pick the distances and, and, and stuff like that across London. And I remember the days before we had, I don't know, the first generation of satin-hours were it was made by people called TomTom. Remember anyone TomToms? And, and uh, Garmin, I think, was another manufacturer who made them. And um, in those early days, uh, before we have now wonderful, you know, complicated AI maps and stuff like that, um, there were lots of reports of maps taking people into rivers or across some farmer's fields. You remember those stories in, in the news? Yeah, I remember a few kind of thinking that people put their absolute trust in this sat-nav to get them from A to B, and it took them you know, some, some feral way uh, to where they wanted to get to. My friend, actually, um, Wayne, had, a, had nicknamed his, his original kind of sat-nav Garminda, the wayward woman, because it used to bring him oftenly like round of turn left, turn left, turn left, turn left, turn left, turn left, and he'd be back in the same place. So yeah, the Warminda, the good woman sat nav. Um, but as early days, I remember people put their trust in these new technologies to take them from A to B. And I thought, as you know, I'm, I used to always plan my journeys. I would look at my A to Z, earmark, this is just, maybe I'm just weird, I would like earmark landmarks to go from A to B, I kind of know approximately be this kind of this time and stuff like that to get, you know, across London. And yeah, I had the A to Z on my lap, which was very unsafe. Um, but yeah, I resisted uh, kind of using sat-navs and stuff because I just didn't know, I didn't trust that it would get me to where I wanted to get to. I knew and I thought, is there really only one way which would get me from home to wherever, to church? And I think that's the kind of question we ask ourselves sometimes in life, isn't it? Is there only one way to live? Is there only one way in which we will find life? And that's a question which we as Christians say, yes, there is one way, there is one name, there is one truth, and his name is Jesus. And when we think about that and we think about what that means for us as a church and as people living in a pluralistic uh, relative society, and I'll try to explain a few of those words, what they mean, we're in this portion of Acts where um, the, the as disciples, so it's Peter and John speaking, um, they present this statement, absolute truth and absolute claims excludes every other claim about what it means to live what it means to happen after you die, what it means to find the way to God. And this is found in Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 12, and it says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, heaven given among men which we must be saved. That is an exclusive, absolute statement that the church that we hold 
to, that the early Christians held to and brought to the world, that there is no other. There is not, it didn't say there is another, there is maybe another. There is no other name, there is no other way given to us, given to men, by which we must be saved. And we believe that wholeheartedly. And we believe that, that Jesus is the name and the way in which we um, can be saved, we can be forgiven through his one sacrifice on the cross now and forever. He is the son of God who came to save us and he is the one way in which we could be made right and be reconnected to our Father in heaven. It is only through the risen Jesus Christ and through life. Now that absolute claim is made by the church and by uh, the disciples talking about him. But Jesus made absolute claims as well. And this is so really interesting because when you look at Jesus' absolute claims about who he was and who he said he was, um, then it really puts into perspective, what are we to do in terms of our days? So Jesus says this in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we get to know God the Father. Through him alone, we find life, hope, and truth. John 11, Jesus says to the woman at the well, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall yet live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, absolute claim. He is not just a way to live. He is the resurrection life. He is the way. Only through him, believing in him, can you have life. Matthew 28, Jesus is sending his uh, disciples out on their final commission, uh, the commission before he goes back to heaven. He says this claim. He said to his disciples, all authority, not some, not a bit, not a bit on the side, a bit on the left, all authority is given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is not one possible way to God. There is not some other way, but it's only God himself come as flesh in Jesus Christ that is the way to the Father. There cannot be many truths. There is one truth, and Jesus just has not left an option for us to choose otherwise. So when we talk about this, especially in our present-day context, where to have a claim to say there is one way and there is no other can be seen um, in a society that we live in where we're trying to be, I guess everyone's trying to find a way to be inclusive and celebrate diversity. And we, we kind of call that idea of people having many different ideas and different ways to live, relativism, that people have a choice in terms of where they choose to place their trust. It may be true for you. You might have heard these phrases. It's great that it works for you, but for me it's different. Yeah, yeah? We might have heard these phrases that all roads lead to the same God. Yeah, there's some people who just choose to say that to try and smooth over the cracks of what people believe in. Or another way people might say is no one religion holds the one truth. How can it be? Surely Christianity has a bit of truth and maybe Buddhism and so does Islam. But no, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. Absolute claims. And when you make absolute claims in our society, what happens is that people tend to say that is disrespectful, that is offensive, it is unkind. And people choose, and maybe in the church as well, we choose to do this. We say, okay, it's fine to have my own truth as long as I keep to myself and make sure that I don't step on other people's toes. And unfortunately, um, if we do do that, and Christians seem to be intolerant, 
hateful and dangerous, if I could even use that word, in today's society. And what that means for us, especially when we're Christians and we read through the book of Acts and we see the in things that are going on in, in the interactions between Jesus' followers and the world around them, is that we see that one way to act is that we, lose, we give in to fear and we lose confidence. And that's something we, we mentioned in the service this morning while we were worshiping, that there was a sense that, you know what, sometimes in this world when we feel this way, we, we get disheartened, we lose confidence, and we, we close up and go, actually, maybe I don't speak about Jesus. Maybe I just do my thing, have my truth, hold it to, to me. But Jesus says, no. Actually, it is um, disrespectful and unloving not to pass on the truth of who Jesus says he is. It is unloving not to tell the wonderful news of what we've been singing about this morning and this evening. Sorry, brain shift. Um, it is wonderful what we have received and wonderfully we must give. So this morning, uh, this evening, uh, we are looking in Acts and looking at the time when the apostles and, so, and disciples actually face opposition. They face a situation where they can choose to either be fearful and hold the truth to themselves, or they can choose to be bold and to share compassionately and lovingly. So if we've been tracking with us in Acts over the last few weeks, um, Acts chapter 3, we have this amazing story, amazing healing of a crippled man, 40 years from birth, laid by the gate outside the um, outside of the uh, temple. And Peter and John are walking by, and he cries out to them for alms, for, for money. And they say, in the name of Jesus, be made well. And he stands up and he is healed miraculously. And because everyone knows about this, this crippled, this lame man by the outside of the to temple, everyone's like, wow, what is going on? How is it that this man who we all know, he's just like, you know, part of the furniture here, he is now well. This is remarkable. This is undeniable that something powerful has happened. And Peter then gives a second sermon in the book of Acts. He gives a sermon which explains to the people who marvel at this wonder, um, that he points their attention that this man was healed by no other name but the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a real person in who they knew who was crucified some seven weeks earlier to their knowledge. And he was raised, not, he didn't just die, but he was raised from the dead. God raised him up and he is the Messiah. He is their Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for and he has the power to heal and restore. And he says, repent, because God is here. He's giving his salvation. So this is where we end. Peter's, again, given his second sermon. And it says that 5,000 people now believe. I think a few chapters ago, it was 3,000. So that's an increase of 2,000 people. That's pretty good numbers. Just by preaching the name of Jesus and telling them and the testimony of this man, many people have already, within the first few weeks of the church starting, have come and put their faith in the name of Jesus and are saved. So there's this wonder that happens when Jesus' name is preached. When people hear about Jesus, there's a wonder and excitement and engagement that happens. And we see that in the numbers, the 5,000 people who are now following and believing. But on the other hand, there's also rejection and there's opposition that does come. And this is where we are in Acts 4, 1 to 12. So let's just read that from where we are in the Bible now. So it says this, chapter 4, verse 1. As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was ready evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders, the scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Capias, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him and this man, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this is the first time we see opposition to the message of Jesus. This is the first time we see people rejecting or putting physical opposition against what Peter and John are doing. Now the question is why? Why are people so annoyed? And interestingly, it says greatly annoyed. And when we look at the Greek, it's interesting. The word they used is greatly disturbed. Grieved is the word often translated. So it's not just saying, like, oh, roll the eyes. They're talking about some nonsense again. People always talked in the temple courts. But they were teaching something and telling, them some, telling the people something. And there was power being demonstrated, which affected the Sadducees, who were the rulers and those in authority in the, in the temple courts. What was it that Peter and John were doing that called them to be grieved, to be so enraged almost with the message that they were saying? Now, to understand this, we need to understand a little bit about the Sadducees. Who were they? What were they about? And the Sadducees, um, if you go look in commentaries and stuff, they're not much talked about them other than they were rich people. They were... um, um, they were people who were in the kind of political elite. We learn a lot, actually, from the Bible and how Jesus talks about them, the Sadducees. And this is some of the things that we learn. They were the ruling class. They were like the rich, political, powerful people. They held positions of authority. And really, they, won, they were quite secular because they wanted to align themselves with the Romans because the Romans were in control in Israel at the time. And to keep in power and to keep their authority, they basically sided with the Romans and kept them happy and kept the peace so that they could keep their power. Yeah, so they were kind of like, you know, copping out from being Jewish because they were kind of just aligning with the invaders. Um, but that meant they controlled the positions of the chief priests and the high priest positions, so places, again, of authority. Uh, and they were the, me- the majority members of the thing called the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court. So they could take care of kind of the political matters and really rule over what the decisions were being made. And they were rather more political than religious. That's quite interesting because, um, therefore, their authority or maintaining authority was built on maintaining wealth, power, and status. And that's quite different because maybe you've heard in the Bible there were people called Pharisees. And Pharisees were another group of people. They were religious leaders, but they were more interested in um, keeping the Jewishness, you could say, or the faith of what they believed. So their, their view wasn't secular necessarily. It was more kind of moral. They kept the law. They were ultra-religious. They made sure they 
adhered to the, the law, but also they went beyond that and put on weights of different kind of um, religious practices to make sure that they really, really did follow God and follow the law. So they were maybe more pious and more religious. And the problem, well, not the thing that happened, was that the Sadducees, who didn't really like the Pharisees anyway, they ganged together against Jesus because Jesus upset them. When Jesus was alive, walking on the earth, and, and doing his thing, and giving his ministry, and healing people, the secular Sadducees and the religious Pharisees started to band together and found a way and formed a way to destroy Jesus. Jesus, the way he lived, in his purity, threatened the, the Pharisees' moral code. The way he lifted up the broken and healed and showed grace and mercy to the poor and brought authority and teaching upset the Sadducees because that eroded their authority and their power. And you can see that jealousy and, and, and rage against Jesus is what really threatened them. It revealed their sinfulness. It revealed the fact that they tried to be moral, but their morality was corrupt. It showed that even though they had power and political power, that wasn't enough for them because they didn't have authority. Jesus, the king of the universe, had ultimate authority. So they rejected the claims of Jesus. They rejected him as God. Through jealousy, they demonstrated the fragility of their authority. So rather than receiving Jesus, they rejected him. And they formed a devious plan to judge Jesus to, on the darkness, to send him to the Roman authorities to be crucified and to mock him and to destroy him and to send him to the grave. So they thought. So they thought. Good riddance, they must have thought. Thank goodness, this Jesus, this troublemaker, I'm safe now under my pious authority or I'm safe now under my secular Roman rule. But now comes along Peter. John saying, Jesus, this Jesus you crucified, he's not dead, he's alive. By the way, uh, what's going on here, guys? They must have thought, oh my goodness, round two. Um, Jesus is not dead, he's alive, he's resurrected. And know what? They're not just saying words, they're demonstrating it in healing. Undeniable healing of a cripple. Everyone knows who he is. Suddenly, the power that Jesus had is in the disciples, and they're doing the same thing. They are drawing crowds to them. They are influencing. They're changing the power. They're shifting the power to the person of Jesus, not to the secular rulers. And because of that, they are greatly annoyed. <laughs> I would have used probably a different word, but that's what the translators used. Greatly annoyed. So what do they do? They arrest Peter and John, shackle them up. That's all they can do to shut them up, put them in jail, and then decide what they're going to do tomorrow, the next day. But at this point, I'm just really interested because they basically, Peter and John, get an audience with the high priests, the rulers, and the authorities. And just look who comes up. We read in verse um, 6. They end up meeting in the morning with Anas, the high priest, and Capias, and John and Alexander. Now, these names might seem familiar because they were exactly the same people who met with Jesus. And they tried Jesus at night under a mock trial and brought accusers against him. And they're the same people who struck Jesus over the head and say, has said, prophesy, who hit you? And these were the same people who mocked Jesus on the cross when he hung there. And these are the same people, when Jesus looked at them, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And yet Jesus sends Peter and John 
into their midst again to tell them the good news of Jesus. Can you just see the power and the grace that Jesus has? Jesus didn't have to send them to that. He could have let them die and be destroyed in their sin. But by the grace of God, Jesus sends Peter and John into their midst again. What a gracious God we have, that even his enemies, he loves them. But the thing is, what do we learn about this confrontation now that comes before them? Peter and John, they're standing before these same people, the ones who sent Jesus, their master, to death. What do we learn from the way they address these elders and these rulers? And there's three things I want to share with you. And this hopefully can give us confidence. We find ourselves in positions and places where we are called to speak about Jesus. Maybe they're not enemies. Maybe they're friends who respect and honor us. And that's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to be. But these are three things that Peter and John do. They answer them, firstly, with kindness, clarity, and respect. Secondly, they give the gospel invitation and testify to the goodness of Jesus. And thirdly, they confront them with loving persuasion. Kindness and clarity and respect. Secondly, a gospel invitation and testifying of Jesus' goodness. And thirdly, they confront them with loving persuasion. Firstly, Peter says these things. Peter filled, in verse 8, it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Rulers of the people and elders. He didn't say, you, whatever you want to say. <laughs> you know, they killed Jesus, their best, their friend, their master. But they know Jesus is alive. They know Jesus is fine. So they say, rulers, people, elders, they respect them. They give them respect and honor. And when we speak about Jesus, one of the things I feel that we as a church have to do so well is to earn and respect people's, and, and earn people's respect and become friends with people and, and let them see our lives. Because that's the way in which we communicate, but not just with boldness, but with compassion as well. Um, you just have to think about how Jesus did it on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And in a few verse, in a few chapters later on, we read about Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. What does he do? In the echoes of Jesus' words, he says, do not hold their sin against them while he was being stoned by rulers and authorities because of their proclamation of Jesus. Kindness, clarity, and respect is always the way in which we are to bring the gospel to people. Not out of rage, anger, or showing, that, showing ourselves off or somehow we have truth and they don't. We are there to do with clarity and respect. Secondly, there's a gospel invitation by testifying to the goodness of Jesus. Um, nobody can deny that this crippled man is alive and well and dancing and leaping for joy. Um, that's the words it uses in Acts chapter 3. But I want to say that the picture of the, of the crippled man is a he- picture of a healing, but it's a bigger picture of what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not just a fairy tale or just a few nice words. It is a power to transform the whole of humanity. It takes a man who was physically lame from birth, unable to work, poor because of that, a beggar, someone who is to be pitied, emotionally destroyed, relationally separated. People would say he would be cursed by God because of his disabilities. Spiritually, he couldn't enter into the temple, unclean. He would be only carried to the edge of the worship, 
of the place of worship. That was where he would spend 40 years of his days at the edge of the presence of God. But what does Jesus do? When the powerful name of Jesus comes on his life, what happens? He's restored to perfect health. His weak legs are made strong. He is full of hope. He is restored into community and society. He's able to leap and enter into the courts of God with joy. And that is the picture of what the gospel is. That is what we hold, the name of Jesus. And that's what the name of Jesus does. He takes broken, crippled, spiritually poor people and lifts them up to be sons and heirs of the Most High God. That is a wonderful picture. And it, being a Christian, therefore, doesn't mean that we, are, we think better of ourselves and we think we are good people. We are helpless sinners, crippled from birth by sin. And the only hope we have is the name of Jesus to save. That is what the kingdom of God is. It is a place where it invites everyone to come, all who are thirsty, all who are weak. Come to the fountain. Keep your heart in this stream of love. Emotionally poor, the crippled, the sinners and the beggars, those who encounter Jesus, Jesus graciously restores. And we know our restoration isn't always in this lifetime because we're not living just for this time. We're living for eternity when all things are made new. And that is what our hope is. That is what we bring. That is the hope of the kingdom, that all things will be made new in God's perfect timing. And until that day, we have faith and trust in him. And that is what we're inviting people to, the goodness of Jesus for you and for me. So we enter in with kindness and respect and clarity. We enter in giving an invitation and testifying about Jesus. And thirdly, we confront with loving persuasion. This is what Peter does here. He doesn't just tell them that this man is healed by Jesus. He says this in his next few words. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him, this man is raised before you well. This is the stone that you rejected, the builders. Now he has become the cornerstone. So Paul, or Peter here doesn't just leave them at that. He says, you know what? The reason why this happens, the reason why we are, we are here standing is because you crucified the risen Christ, but God raised him up. You are the reason why Jesus was crucified. Jesus confronts them with their sinfulness. He doesn't hide, they didn't hide and say, uh, you know, I think you guys were involved. You, you know, had this nasty little meeting, you know, with these, with these Sadducees and Pharisees. Jesus, he actually confronts them with the reality of sin, the reality of their brokenness, how they needed to hear it. All is not well between the Sadducees and God. All is not well between our friends who do not know God the Father. All is not well between you and your fellow man. Sin has marred you. Sin has Destroy, is destroying you and you're walking your paths outside of God's ways but I love how it says but God but God this is what God does he invites them lovingly he doesn't just say you crucified him he says you know what you guys are the builders you guys I'm going to use he uses Psalms 118 and Psalms 118 they're quoting here about the cornerstone he says this this stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, 
is, is a beautiful quotation where basically what's happening is they're saying, you know what? You did it for evil, but God redeemed it for good. Even though you're part of this evil plan and sending Jesus to his death, that is not the end. Jesus redeemed, God redeemed that and rose Jesus. And now Jesus is that cornerstone which you can build your life on. Can you see the grace that comes out through that? Yes, there's a second chance for these Sadducees and these Pharisees. God in his wisdom takes what they tossed aside and raises them up to be the cornerstone on which they can now build their lives on if they choose by faith. And it's the same for us. Um, when we are with our friends or family or those who don't know Jesus, one of the things we must do is confront the realities of sinfulness. Not in an unkind, condemning way. Often you see the fruit of sinfulness and the fruit of our wickedness as human beings, don't we? We see it in our conflicts. We see it in our selfishness. And we're called to earnestly draw people to another way, to build their lives on a cornerstone, on a rock that will not give up on them. Maybe your friends, we say, you know, they seem to have everything in place. Maybe they've got a house and two kids and they're doing fine. Let me tell you, they're not fine. They are not in a good place with God. Their foundation on which they build their lives on, if it's not Jesus, is like shifting sand. And we, with compassion, with compassion, go and say, Jesus, help me to speak your loving kindness and persuasion into their lives so they may see that you are the firm foundation, the authority on which you can build your life on and it will not be shifted and will not give up on you. Sometimes that happens through circumstances where life doesn't go as they had planned. And we don't gloat, do we? <laughs> but maybe, you know, we see those situations where, you know, they had planned and their foundation maybe is their success or their money, but that falls through. Or their, their, their foundation was their family, but their kids are going astray. And God willingly would put us in those places by the power of the Holy Spirit to be in those places where we call upon the Lord and say, Jesus, come, reveal to them who you are as the firm foundation on which you can build your life. So our question to our friends is, what is your foundation? Maybe the question we have to ask ourselves first is, what is our foundation? Is our foundation the rock, which is Jesus Christ? And if we're building on that, we will not be shaken and his promise to us is that we will never be put to shame. Ephesians 2.20, I think it is. There's no other cornerstone to build on. That is a truth that we have to hold. As a truth we have to hold when we go to our workplaces, when we go to uh, our family meetings, that if they're not building on Jesus, their, 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 their ultimate reality will come crashing down because it's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that they can build a foundation that will last now and into eternity. So, maybe your friends are like the Pharisees. Maybe they put their morality or their good works as the way in which they prove that they are, um, they are, you know, they're right before God or whoever it may be. And um, what do we do in those situations? I guess we pray. <laughs> we pray and say, God, would you show them that they're good, that we, good works like filthy rags, but the free gift of God is eternal life. They can't earn it. They can't buy it. It's a free gift. Come to Jesus. Or maybe they're like the Sadducees who place their success and wealth and worth in all those things. And what we do, we present the Jesus who laid aside his majesty, 
who put his crown on the side and came humbly as a servant and gave his life that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And maybe Christmas is a wonderful demonstration of that where we think about Christmas and what we can invite people to. We want to demonstrate and show them the humble king who came as a babe to die and to save us from our sins. Or maybe the friends we have or the families we have, their, their, their foundation, their cornerstone, which they're building lives on is happiness and seeking pleasures and friendships and relationships and all the things that this world is trying to give them or saying to them that they need to be satisfied. And maybe we need to present them with this, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So as we think about this, and we think about our confidence, I want us to remember these three things. We go with kindness. We go with respect. We go with the testifying of God's goodness through Jesus. And we confront with loving persuasion. And would God give us wisdom? I don't know the situations you're in, the people you're with. All I know is that we need the boldness of the Holy Spirit, the willingness to say, Lord, here I am. Would you use me? And would you be glorified so that others may come and know you as the beautiful Savior, the name that is above every other name. As we do that, just as we've done this morning, this evening already, um, through singing, Lord, here's my heart. Use me. I want to pray for us this evening. I want to pray for us this evening that we need confidence. If we feel that we are fearful, if we feel like we are, feel intimidated, if we feel like we don't have the words to say, maybe feel like you're not clever enough. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would dispel all fear. You would help us to be a people who love you. We will be people of love because you first loved us and you've called us by your grace. Would we, Lord, call others to the goodness of Jesus. We do do that with kindness and respect. Would you give us wisdom in those moments, words that cut through soul, marrow, and bone, words that come from you that bring life and awaken our soul so that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal Jesus to our friends who so desperately need you. Through loving persuasion, would we have the joy of seeing many sons come to glory. Lord, equip us, we pray. Equip us, Lord, with the joy of knowing that one day, Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And we pray, Lord, that day it will be with our friends and those whom we love, but also our enemies. And I just want to pray, just feel like we want to pray for this, that for the, for the Middle East right now and for the conflicts there where the pain is so deep and the aggression is so raw and the, conf- and the effects of conflict and war are so apparent and so in our faces on the screens. We just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the only one. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And because of your kingdom, you can restore hope between people who are once enemies, both in this lifetime, but also for eternity. We have no idea, Lord, what peace looks like in the Middle East, but we know, Lord Jesus, both on both sides, people need to know who you are 
and surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we say, Jesus, come and rule and reign. Make your church rise up to be people of pure peacemakers who bring peace not through good ideas or, you know, platitudes, but because they preach the gospel of peace. Because Jesus takes root and people's lives are changed and histories are rewritten and people are included in your kingdom. Lord, we pray for your glory to come and be in this place, Lord, that we may see, Lord, people come to know you and to proclaim you as king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.